Hey fools, tech host Dylan Lewis here. We're enjoying the holidays this week and are re-airing some of our best shows from 2016. Here's one of my favorite tech episodes, Stock-Based Compensation and You. In it, we offer a little history on how stock-based comp has been accounted for in the past, walk listeners through the importance of comparing non-GAAP numbers that companies tend to tout with the GAAP numbers they're required to provide, and also take a look at the books of a few companies to show how all the moving parts come together. Hope you enjoy it. Happy holidays. See you in 2017. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Friday, September 9th, and we're wrapping up back to school week with a discussion of stock-based compensation in tech. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined in the studio by Motley Fool Premium Analyst, David Kretzman. David, how's it going? It's good to be here, Dylan. Thanks for having me. So, back to school week, we're kind of diving into some of these different concepts that are kind of unique to each sector. I chose stock-based compensation in tech, super relevant. But before we get into the show, David, because it's back to school week, any teachers growing up that really inspired you, kind of helped you find your way, anything like that? It's hard to to mention one. I'll go with let's see. I'll go with Carol Parkhurst. She was my second grade teacher, just one of the sweetest, kindest women uh, who who I ever knew. And I don't know if I can point to a specific thing that I learned, but just in terms of being kind to others, enjoying life the love of learning. I, I think a lot of it stems from her, so I'll, I'll give her a shout-out. That's awesome. Great lessons to learn early on. I'll yep. give a little shout-out to Mary Florio, one of my high school English teachers, who pushed me to write for the school paper, and then I wound up writing for my college paper and minoring in journalism. Now I'm here at The Fool. Here Financial media. Look at that. Thank you, teachers. It is, it is all thanks to Mary Florio. So, <laughs> um, we will do our best to imitate our favorite teachers here on this show. Uh, as we try to explain stock-based compensation today. Um, so, stock-based compensation takes a couple different forms. I think what you see most commonly is either stock options or restricted stock units. Uh, stock options give the employees the right to buy shares at, of the company stock at a predetermined price after a certain amount of time vests. Um, and then, restricted stock units, uh, the company distributes common shares directly to employees, again, after a vesting period. Um, we see this in all sectors of the market, but I think it's most relevant to tech, David. Yeah, absolutely. I think th- this really started in large part in Silicon Valley because paying employees in stock in one form or another is appealing when you're a young startup and you don't have cash. So basically, you're telling employees, okay, we don't have cash on, on the books, but we can give you an equity portion of the company or shares of the company, which theoretically, should pay off even more than a cash salary if the the value of the company, the value of the stock increases over time. So it can be a a very valuable proposition for employees. It can also be valuable for the company because they don't have to spend precious cash on salaries, or maybe they don't have to pay as much of a salary if they can instead compensate employees with with some form of stock. And this is um, because it's become such a staple of the tech world. I think become a very hotly debated issue when it comes to company financials. Um, if you go back to the 90s and even the early 2000s, this was kind of a big issue, and there was this open debate about should technology firms have to expense their stock options, and it should it be something that's part of uh, GAAP or generally accepted accounting principles, uh, the numbers that they report for public purposes. Um, the crux of the argument from the tech firm side is, well, stock option grants to employees are not cash expenses, so they shouldn't be recognized as an expense for for gap reporting. The counter argument to that is, yes, they're not cash expenses, but 
Share-based compensation is a type of compensation. If you're going to track salaries, you also need to track equity grants. And I think more importantly, and more as it relates to investors, uh, you're giving out equity in this business, right? And so, giving out shares means increasing the number of shares outstanding, which means diluting the existing shareholders. Um, and I think one of the companies that we're going to get to in the second half of the show uh, kind of has a bad habit of doing that for some of their employers. Uh-huh. Uh, but if you look to the mid 2000s, the Financial Accounting Standards Board decided companies did need to include stock based compensation as an expense when reporting gap numbers. Um, Predictably, not all tech companies were thrilled about this. Um, I think what we've seen in the time since then is a rise in the emphasis companies put on their non-GAAP numbers. And this is something you see in tons of conference calls uh, during earnings season. Um, you know, these are the numbers that allow for adjustments outside of these generally accepted accounting principles, like I mentioned before. On the second half of the show, we're going to dive a little bit into how different these numbers can look, and a few different companies and how they approach stock-based compensation. So, David, uh, we teased that we were going to be talking about a company um, maybe dilute shareholder a little bit with some of their stock-based compensation approaches. Um, we're talking, of course, about Twitter. Uh, this is a company that has issued a ton of stock-based compensation in the last couple of years. Um, it has been over 150 million for each of the past five quarters, which is kind of crazy. Um, to put it into context, in their most recent quarter. Stock-based compensation amounted to about 28% of revenue. Yeah, and and comparing that to some other tech giants, uh, looking over the past year in terms of stock-based compensation for Twitter, it was about 26%. For LinkedIn, it's about 17%. For Facebook, 15%. For Alphabet, 7%. For Amazon, 2%. So Twitter really stands out in this department, and. Stock-based compensation, in and of itself, obviously isn't a bad thing, but it can be abused. And I think, in the case of Twitter, this is an example of a company that is between a rock and a hard place because they can't—they don't necessarily have the cash to suddenly pay employees their salaries or bonuses completely in cash. Like they—they've promised their employees that they're going to pay them these lucrative salaries and bonuses, and stock-based compensation is a key piece of that. So it's not an expense that's going to go away unless they—they. Hire less talented people or whatever, but with stock-based compensation, it dilutes shareholders. So when you have such an excessive level of stock-based compensation, like you do at Twitter, their diluted share count, their diluted shares outstanding, is increasing each quarter by about one to two percent. So that basically means that any given year, the total number of Shares outstanding for Twitter is going up about ten percent. For them to even, for the company to even tread water, then they need to grow sales and earnings at ten percent a year. So stock-based compensation can be okay if a company is growing quickly, because theoretically, okay, we'll if if you're a shareholder and you you own Twitter, you can say, okay, I'm okay with you diluting my ownership of the company if that's going to help you maintain growth over time. But in the case of Twitter, you have a company that's really floundering in a lot of ways. They've had a ton of leadership changes and departures. Their revenue growth is decelerating. Uh, they're still not showing a gap profit. Their their cash flow is still very questionable when you back out stock-based compensation. So in the case of Twitter, it's kind of a perfect storm where you have massive stock-based compensation pretty rapid dilution, and at the same time, the company's business and sales growth is decelerating. So, you mentioned backing stock-based compensation out of cash flow, and we talked about how this plays with the financials a little bit. I think it's just good to illustrate this to look at 
the reconciliation that Twitter does uh, to get from their net loss number, which is a gap number, to their adjusted EBITDA. And uh, you look, okay, most recent quarter, Twitter posted a net loss of just over $100 million. Within this reconciliation, this itemized table where they add back in certain costs. Mm-hmm. One of them is stock-based compensation, some of the other ones depreciation, interests, uh, that gets them to that earnings before interest taxes, depreciation, and amortization number. Um, $167 million of that is stock-based compensation. And so, you see them swing from a net loss of over $100 million to an adjusted EBITDA of positive $175 million. And 167 of that is stock-based compensation. Right. Stock-based compensation in the case of Twitter and a lot of other companies that do this, it's the only reason a company shows a quote-unquote adjusted profit. Uh, and then it also carries over to the cash flow statement because the companies will say, okay, we didn't actually pay out this stock-based compensation expense. That wasn't cash leaving our pocket, so we're going to add it back and pretend that, or, and basically say that that that's cash that the company kept. So that contributes to operating cash flow and the free cash flow number. So again, it can be good or bad. I think in a case like Twitter, I would argue that's probably being abused, just because it's not very clear that that stock-based compensation expense is contributing to shareholders in any way. The company and the stock have both performed pretty poorly over the past couple of years, below expectations. So, if that, but if that is if stock-based compensation is the only thing that's leading to an adjusted profit or a decent-looking cash flow statement, I take that with a big grain of salt because you don't want that to be the only driver of a company's profitability or cash flow generation. Right, especially because it's in a certain, in some way, kind of coming out of the everyday investor's pocket, right? Right. And so, um, even if it is being used well with a high-growing company, I think. It's very important for folks to check in and just see this reconciliation going from net loss to adjusted EBITDA, or take a look at the cash flow statement and just get a sense of how big of a chunk uh, is coming out with stock-based compensation because it's just a good thing to monitor. Absolutely, and then uh, the the other piece of stock-based compensation that we can get into is I think one of the better ways that you can use stock-based compensation if you're a company is to align the interests of uh, management and and. The, the, the wider employee base with shareholders. I think at its best, stock-based compensation can help align um, you know, an executive team and the employees of a business to think in terms of where can we how can we grow the business sustainably over a three and five year period and reward employees and executives accordingly. That's stock-based com- compensation at its best. At its worst, it's just a way to to compensate employees and executives in the short term, maybe give some warped incentives at the expense of common shareholders like like us, like you and me at, at here. Do you have a couple companies in mind uh, that do it particularly well? I know Twitter. It sounds like is kind of um, kind of a dog in your eyes with this. Twitter is iffy. Like there are some bright spots, like Jack Dorsey, who returned as CEO. He's a co-founder who returned as CEO last year. Like he's elected to receive no compensation, including stock grants or stock options this year. He also donated. Um, a good chunk of his uh, ownership in Twitter to the, the equity pool at, at Twitter. So, some, some of his shares will basically be distributed across the entire company. So, there are some good things, but Twitter, for the most part, uh, a, a lot of their compensation is in stock-based compensation when you're looking at the executive level, but it's just based on you know, operating metrics over one year, so it's really there's not much of a hurdle for management to jump to to get that stock-based compensation. And we talked about the idea of vesting periods before, right. and what you'll commonly see is 
um, you know, shares vest over, you know, they're usually denominated in years, whether it's one year, two years, and then every year following that. And so, if if your hurdle rate is one year or two years, um, that's going to impact your thinking a little bit, you know, whether you realize it or not. Exactly. And you also, and by the way, you you can find um, these um, these numbers in the SEC filings for each company in the DEF 14A, or what we call commonly the proxy statement. So it's worth taking a look at it. And you also you don't want to only look at what executives are being compensated and how they're being compensated. You also want to look at the board of directors. So in the case of Twitter. Um, the board members they are paid twelve thousand five hundred dollars in cash every quarter just for showing up, and then they're also giving given a stock award of two hundred twenty five thousand dollars that vests quarterly until the next board meeting. So basically, they get a quarter of a million dollars in in stock that's vested within a year. So that that doesn't really to me that that's not a very compelling uh, incentive for long-term performance. Yeah, that doesn't Twitter. push you towards long-term thinking, right? Exactly, yeah, cuz they're getting rewarded no matter what within a year, no matter how the company performs. One one example more in the tech space that I think is a better example. It's not a the perfect example, but one that uh, I think is a step in the right direction is Wayfair. So this is the online furniture re- retailer. Um the the co-founders are still with the company. They actually still own almost forty percent of, of the company. So that's something we always love to see it as right. fools. So that that's a great starting point. Uh, the two co-founders they reduced their cash salary to eighty thousand dollars, so a reasonable base salary, and uh, the bulk of executive pay is paid out in restricted stock units that vest over a period of five years. So right there, that that shows you okay, the the executives they have to think in in terms of the long term. Ideally, this would be tied to business performance. So, ideally, they wouldn't even get rewarded if if the business didn't meet certain operating metrics. But still, that that's certainly an improvement over Twitter, where you're getting rewarded no matter what within a year. At Wayfair, you have to wait five years, uh, and then the the board of directors they don't get paid any cash, and instead they're paid in restricted stock units that vest over three years. So, even at the board of directors level, they're not just getting paid cash and stock to show up every quarter. They also have to think as long-term owners of the business, uh, since their stock will vest over a three-year period. So that's a, a bit of an improvement over, I think, what you see at Twitter. And that's something that can dramatically shape the um, overall strategy for a business and just kind of the direction that management wants to take it, right? Yeah, exactly. And and of course, you you can't you, you don't want to put any any one metric or factor in a vacuum as an investor. Like you want to evaluate. Uh, you know, management incentives and compensation, along with all the other factors. So I wouldn't buy or sell a stock based solely on on this. So Twitter might end up being a multi bagger from here. Might be a great investment. Wayfair might be a dud. But uh, obviously, all all else being equal, I want to know that the the management team at a company that I'm investing in is thinking of and incentivized to think of the long term sustainability uh, and growth of a business. One one company, it's not strictly speaking a, a tech company that I think that's it, all right. We we can talk non tech. I'm allowed to talk non tech. I'm on the rule breaker service, so I want to break the rules of this podcast. Yeah, a there bit, it is. Dylan. Yeah, <laughs> um, I think one company that has one of the the best um, compensation um, incentive programs out there uh, is Home Depot. Um, so uh, just just starting with uh, the the board of directors, the the annual. Uh, Compensation given to directors, at least two thirds of that has to be in stock, and uh, 
the shares of stock must continue to be held by the director until he or she leaves the board, and the bulk of compensation is in deferred shares. So basically, they're getting as long as you're on the board at Home Depot, you are getting um, deferred stock, but you you can't sell it until you leave. So that kind of incentivizes you to think of the long term of Home Depot as long as you want to be a director. Right. Oh, it's it's a, it's a very different timetable for decision making. Right. So so that's a good start. Uh, and then, looking at the executive level, uh, you basically have five different um, variables or five different uh, components that contribute to total compensation for executives. You have the base salary, so that's the only fixed component of uh, executive salary at Home Depot. So it's a fl- flat amount of cash. Uh, it, it's not a low amount, but it's still a flat amount of cash that makes up about twenty percent of their total compensation if you're an executive at Home Depot. Then you have a variable portion of uh, cash salary that's tied to uh, operating income and some business metrics like uh, so operating income, inventory turnover, return on invested capital. So the the the, the variable cash uh, portion of that salary is tied to very important operating metrics for the health of the business for that year. Then you have performance based restricted stock. So uh, that vests over. Um, or that that's looking at um, other operating metrics like uh, operating profit. Um, so you the the executives would only get shares if they they meet their hurdles for operating profit. Then you have stock options. Again, those are tied to um, other metrics. I won't go into them uh, right now. And then performance shares, which are based on three-year averages for operating profit, return on invested capital, inventory turnover. So, and when you have that three-year average, you don't have people squeezing at the end of a quarter to try to make something look good. It's it's something that you kind of have to sustain for performance. Exactly. Yeah. You you want because some some companies will tie their uh, stock-based compensation to things like earnings per share or net income. Things that can be tweaked much more easily in the short term than something that's looking at a three-year average for something like inventory turnover or return on invested capital. Incentives are very important, and this is something uh, that that we try to focus on here at The Fool. So, you want to make sure that management is incentivized to do things that will contribute to the long-term health and sustainability of a business. So, in the case of Home Depot, it's kind of complex having the five different uh, segments that go into an executive's compensation. But when you look at each of those segments and p- combine those, I- I'm pretty confident that the executives at Home Depot are thinking of and rewarded by um, long-term performance of those key operating metrics at the company. Awesome. That's a great example. Um, for listeners that are interested in getting a little bit more on this, or just want to see it written out rather than hearing about it on a podcast, uh, sometimes I know we throw a lot of numbers and definitions at you here. Uh, there's an article on Fool.com, stock-based compensation and tech stocks: what you need to know, written by one of our contributors, Timothy Green. Uh, if you can't find it uh, through the Google or anything like that, feel free to just shoot us an email, and we're happy to uh, just send it along to you. Anything else before I let you go, David? No, I, I think that's it. Like I said, incentives are really important. Stock-based compensation is is a key component of how uh, management is rewarded and, and incentivized. So I, I encourage uh, people out there, if you're researching a company, add the proxy statement to something you look at. It's not the most enlight- entertaining, you know, evening reading that you'll have, but it's important to see. Uh, how, just how much the the management of a company is aligned with you as a long term shareholder, and the proxy statement is a great step to 
to figuring that out one way or another. That's sound advice. I think your teacher would be proud. Oh, I appreciate Dylan. <laughs> Likewise. Well, listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or just want to reach out and say, hey, you can shoot us an email. Like I said, if you want to get a copy of that article, uh, we're happy to send it along. Just reach out at industryfocus at fool.com. You can always tweet us at MF Industry Focus. If you're looking for more of our stuff, subscribe on iTunes or check out the Fool's family of shows at fool.com slash podcasts. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. For David Kretzman, I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening, and Fool on! Fool on!